Uh, you guys have, I'm sure, noticed already, and some of you have already uh, talked to about this, um, the fact that my wife and children are not here uh, this evening, and um, this, uh, this place is a lot different without those people, huh? Uh, and my life is so much different when they are not here. Uh, so I know that they're watching online, and um, so I want to give a shout out to my wife and children and say especially to my wife that my life is a steaming pile of garbage without you in it. So come back safe and soon, please. All right, that being said, we are continuing this evening with our series, Why Is This Even In Here?, And uh, we've been going through, you know, strange, obscure, difficult to understand passages in the Bible. Um, And hopefully gaining a much better understanding of those passages. Now, normally uh, what happens is I will start out with a story that frames the passage that we are talking about uh, in the evening. Today I want to begin a little bit differently. Um, Still with a story, but this time with a story that frames the series as a whole rather than the specific text that we're looking at tonight. I want to emphasize with this story why this series is important and what I want you to get out of this series. So, yesterday I was in a Facebook debate. You guys know that I hate those, right? And I know what you're thinking, what a hypocrite. Because of how many times I've stood up here and told you, don't get in Facebook debates. I try to avoid them like the plague, okay? I don't even like Facebook to begin with. I don't know why I even go on there. It is a cesspool of stupidity. All the time, okay? Scroll through Facebook and you will instantly get stressed. And, uh, and, and I especially hate uh, keyboard warriors who go online and philosophize and try to act like they're God's gift to mankind and the smartest people in the world. Um, and so even, even when I am on Facebook, okay, I hardly ever comment on anything remotely controversial. I'll comment on like a picture of somebody's kid and say, that's so cute, or whatever. But I hardly ever comment on something that could turn into a debate. But sometimes, every so often, you're scrolling, you're scrolling, and you see something, and it catches your eye, and you, you can't not say something, right? You see it, and you're like, I, I want to avoid this. I want to turn it off. I want to look away, I I got to say something. Well, as a disclaimer for this conversation, let me say it didn't turn into a debate per se, all right? We went back and forth like four or five times, and it was very civil and very respectful. No names were called. No one implied that the other one was a four-year-old. Nothing like that. It, It was over quickly, And uh, like three comments in, I was like, hey, dude, if you want to continue this any further, you're more than welcome to give me a call. Uh, DM me for my number. And 
here's a free tip for you. That is a great way to end any type of discussion on Facebook, okay? Always say, hey, if you want to talk about this, hit me up. Here's my number. You know why? Because no one is ever going to do that, all right? No one is ever going to follow up on, give me a call. Because they're over there thinking, I don't have time for that. But they do have time to spend four hours crafting the perfect gotcha response to the Facebook thread. But no one's actually going to call you. Now, I'm not saying that the guy who I was talking to is like that. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. I went to college with him, and he was a nice guy then. He's probably still a nice guy now. And we were both very nice to each other. Disclaimer over. The post was an article that he shared. And he shared it with this long description before the link. And the first uh, sentence of his description talked about how the article was shocking and horrifying. Okay? That if you read it, you will be shocked and horrified. But then, right after that, he talked about how the author of the article makes a strong biblical case for all the shocking and horrifying things that the article is about. And how the author is being more biblical than almost every other Christian that you encounter. All right, at this point, I'm leaning in. All right, you got me. I am hooked. If you guys are wondering how to ever dangle a carrot in front of me, This is how it is done, okay? Say something about the Bible that if you read this, you are going to be horrified and and it's going to throw you for a loop. I'll be like, well, what is it? I got to see it. My spidey senses are tingling at this point. So he continues in his description. He's like, you know, we can't change what the Bible says. We can't make it fit our narrative, even if it's making us uncomfortable. And I'm like, Okay, true. Yeah, that's true. He's like, you know, it's intellectually dishonest to twist the Bible to make it not say some of the awful things that it says and clearly means. Oh, now I'm really hooked. Like, all right, where are we going here, guy? He's like, we can't rationalize things in the Bible away, and most Christians do. And I'm like, okay, okay. He's like, you know, the author of this article is more biblical than almost all of us. And most Christians are more liberal than what they actually realize. And they're sweeping away, disregarding vast swaths of biblical doctrine. And I'm like, what on earth is this article? Please just tell me. The attached article was from... BiblicalGenderRoles.com. We are already off to a questionable start. And it is titled, Seven Steps to Grooming Your Young Christian Wife. I'm like, uh, what? (laughs) What do we have going on here? I can't not read the article, y'all. I, I, I can't, okay? Even at, the title note, when I read the title, I know that I'm going to find the most offensive hogwash that I have ever seen, all right? I know it. 
I see the title. I know it. I know it's in there. I know that I'm going to be shocked and horrified, but I can't not click, okay? I'm hooked. The article begins with a letter from a reader. Excerpts from the letter here. He says, I'm trying to get my wife to follow her role as I assume my role as leader. And she keeps saying, you're not my father. I put us both on a budget. She's overspending hers. I read your article titled, Seven Ways to Discipline Your Wife. What? (laughs) There's a link there, okay? I'm like, oh, I'm going to save that for later. I'm going to come back to this. I read your article titled, Seven Ways to Discipline Your Wife. And in that article, you recommended taking away her debit card. I know I could do this, but that should be the last option. I am, I am, he says, considering to start spanking her. (laughs) Y'all, I'm not making this up. I'm not, I'm I'm not, this is real, okay? I can show you the article if you want. This is a real article, okay? Real people writing this stuff. He says, I am considering starting to spank her. I have mentioned her, mentioned it to her, and she's against it. She thinks spanking her is treating her like a child. Yeah, dude, you think? Uh, how, did you come up with that on your own? Okay. He says, do you think I'm making a mistake trying to incorporate spanking as a form of discipline in our marriage? <laughs> Should I just take away her debit card and give her some limited cash? We're very early in our marriage, and I know this is a time that will set the pattern for the rest of our marriage, and I really would appreciate your guidance. Signed, Robert. Now, Robert's wife, if somehow you are out there and you are seeing and hearing me, run! Okay? Run as far as you can from Robert. All right? There is no coming back from this. I don't know if you know this, but this is what I do when I come to an article like this. I, I don't know if you do this, but th- this is what I do. Okay, I see this, and again, I know that this article is going to be filled to the brim with theological swill. But I can't just slowly work my way through it, okay? I got to quickly skim through the entire article, quickly skim, quickly skim to, to get to the end, to get to the punchline. I got to know what I'm dealing with first, and then I'll go back and slowly read the rest of the article. So I skim, I skim, and it's getting worse and worse as I go. I skim, I skim, I get to the end. I shake my head, I go back, and I read the whole thing. Eyes wide the entire time. Over and over repeating, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I get through the whole article. Now, I'm not going to go over that whole article here today. There's, There's just too much, okay? Suffice it to say that he takes a bunch of Bible verses and piles them together to build a giant steaming dung heap and calls it a mountain to the Lord. He defines gender roles in some of the most misogynistic ways possible and calls them biblical. 
And uh, at one point, Dude Man uses Ephesians chapter 5 to say that you're su- supposed to, this is a quote, all right? Quote, mold your wife to your preferences and behavior. Make her modify her clothing style to the styles you prefer. Make her learn to cook the foods you enjoy. Make her watch the TV shows you watch. While husbands are commanded not to deny sexual relations to their wives, the Bible never commands wives to make their husbands satisfy them sexually. A Christian's wife, a Christian wife's grooming, her, her ordained subjection to her husband is never complete until she has been groomed to be loving, pleasant, and completely sexually satisfying to her husband. <clears throat> And if she's not, he says, discipline your wife. And what's one of the best ways to do that? Spank her. Now, listen, all right. I'm, I'm down with a little bit of spanking, you know. Okay. But I don't think we're defining our terms in quite the same way when I talk about spanking that, that he is, okay? I'm probably not talking about the same thing. Now, at the end of this article, he issues some pretty hilarious caveats. Um, one of them being, this is a God-given right to spank your wife, but your wife may not consent, and she may call the police on you, and you may go to prison for domestic abuse. But don't let that stop you. You hit that broad. (laughs) He also says that he doesn't spank his own wife because she comes from a feminist background and she's in her 40s, which makes her less moldable. She refuses to submit. So I have to use other methods. I wonder why she doesn't submit to you, you dumb ogre. Now, hear me clearly. I want you to know why I am starting with this article. Because the author and many people who are reading this article are using the Bible to support the conclusions therein. Remember what my friend said when he linked this article. He said, the author is being more true to the Bible than most Christians are willing to be. The author is more biblical than most. We can't twist the Bible to make it not say things that make us uncomfortable. So, here we are. Here's a bunch of straightforward Bible verses that defend domestic abuse. What are you going to do with them? Guys, that, that is why I am teaching this series. That is why I am precisely going to the passages in the Bible that most people avoid. It's not because I'm just having a blast doing a deep dive into obscure things, though I am. I have a job as a pastor, and that job is to make disciples. And an essential part of making disciples is training you how to understand and read the Word of God. How you can properly interpret the passages. Guys, I'm so passionate about this. 
Statistics show a dire picture of Christians in terms of their biblical literacy. Most Christians don't even read the Bible regularly, much less understand what they are reading. It can't be that way. It, it, it cannot be that way. And, and, and not in this church. Okay, if, if, if I have anything to do with it, that is not how it's going to be here. I cannot let that happen. I can't stand here and spoon feed you, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, over and over and over every single week. I, I, I can't do that. Dear God, that cannot happen. I want you to know the Bible. I want you to understand it. I want you to know how to examine it. That's why we've been starting every single week in this series with a quiz about principles for biblical interpretation. Because I want those tools to be in your spiritual repertoire that you can put into practice on your own every single day. Otherwise, you will fall victim to bad theology. It's going to happen. You might not Believe something as crazy as wife spanking, but it'll be something. We have to understand what the Bible means when it says something that confronts us. Otherwise, you can use the Bible to defend anything, any position. And that is what the author of this idiotic article does he uses the bible in the exact same way as civil war era slave owners used the bible to defend chattel slavery so i need to know are you committed to the bible yes or no are you committed to the bible yes Are you committed to knowing it well and never quitting on your journey to understanding it better? Good. So, let's dive in. Our passage for today is about the prophet Elisha. And it records a very strange event that takes place at the beginning of his ministry. So, our passage for today is 2 Kings chapter 2. Verses 23 through 25. 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25. He, Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. All right. Two things. Number one. This has always been one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Okay? If you go onto Google and you type in something like worst passages in the Bible or most evil things in the Bible or anything similar to that and you get lists that people have written to say, this is why you can't trust the Bible, this passage is almost always on that list, all right? Because people read it and they're like, what? He did what? 
God is not messing around in this passage, all right? He is going straight up hardcore. Bears come out and start mauling people. That's, that's cool. Number two, this passage makes me mad. Like, like real mad. And I'll tell you why it makes me mad. Because I read this passage and one of the questions that comes to my mind is, why was I not taught the bear curse when I went to seminary? Huh? Do you know how many times I have wanted to invoke that curse in the course of my ministry? You know how many times somebody has tried to step and I, I want to go, bears! But they didn't teach me that. And that makes me mad. So I have to figure out what to do with this passage. Now, all jokes aside, let's talk about why this passage is problematic, shall we? Um, some kids make fun of Elisha. He's walking down the road. Some kids show up and they start making fun of him, jeering at him, calling him baldy. Hey, baldy, go up. Go up, baldy. And he has them mauled by bears. Seems on the surface like a disproportionate response, wouldn't you say? So, what is actually going on? Now, I'm sure by now, this far into the series and this far into you being a part of this church and knowing my preaching, I'm sure you know what's about to happen. You know that I'm going to stand up here and pull a gospel rabbit out of the hat and tell you why there's so much beauty in this story and show you why it's all about Jesus and that it's not what it seems and that it shows the love of God for us. You know that that's coming, right? The Bible is fun and I have a blast doing it. I hope you've been getting that. But before we get to all that good stuff, you know where we have to start with the quiz. So, We've been going through in this series four principles for biblical interpretation. What are those principles? And I miss having my little man in the front raise his hand and give answers. So, what are, yes ma'am. Boom, two points for Valentina. The Bible must be read as an ancient document and genre matters. There's two more, what are they? Yes, sir. Scripture interprets scripture. One more. Thank you, sir. Yes. There's a difference between description and prescription. So, first we understand that the Bible must be read as an ancient document. It was written to ancient people in an ancient time in an ancient place. And we have to understand that first audience and author, the intent that was there, because when we understand that, we can extrapolate the eternal truths that apply to us. Then we have to note the difference between description and prescription. That sometimes the Bible records something, but that doesn't mean it recommends it. It says, this happened, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's saying, now you go and do this. Then we see that genre matters. Literary genres are at play, and we have to read them as the literary genre deserves. You can't read poetry the same way that you read narrative. And finally, scripture interprets scripture. 
We have to place things in light of their immediate context, the context of the verses surrounding it, the book that it's in, and also the context of the entire Bible. Now to those four, I'll give you a free one today. Small details make a big difference. Small details make a big difference. Most of the time, those small details are easily overlooked. Easily overlooked. Um, Without looking at your Bible, can anyone tell me where this is taking place, the location? Anybody remember? No. Exactly. We can't remember where this is taking place because when we read this passage, we're thinking about one thing, bears. But there's a small detail at the beginning that this is taking place at Bethel. And that small detail, as we're going to find out, is very important. And so part of what I want to train you guys to do as we're reading through the Bible is to notice small details. Because small details make a big difference. So, let's begin to set up the context of this passage. In chapters 1 and 2, there's a number of things that we find. What we find is that Elijah has been the prophet up to this point. And you'll remember the prophet Elijah from stories like when he squared off with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. There there was this incredible event where he goes and he sets up sacrifices and he says, we're going to have a competition to see whose God is real. You guys set up your sacrifice, I'm going to set up my sacrifice, and then we're going to call on our gods for fire from heaven. Whoever's God makes the bigger flame wins. And as you guys know in that story, all the prophets of Baal spend hours and hours and hours going nuts trying to get Baal to burn up a sacrifice. And it's not happening. And Elijah is taunting them the whole time. He's talking trash. He's like, oh, maybe your God's taking a nap. I'm going to give you all a minute. And then he's like, oh, I know what's going on. Your God is in the bathroom. Yeah, he needs some time. Let's give him some time. You guys keep dancing. But then after a while, he says, all right, enough's enough. And he prays one prayer to Yahweh. Fire from heaven. And then... All the prophets of Baal get massacred. It's a fun story. Elijah has been the reigning prophet. Now Elisha is going to be his successor. In chapter 1, we see the final act of Elijah's ministry. And this is an event that we're going to come back to a little bit later on in the story. Where essentially you have this king named Ahaziah who is unfaithful to the Lord and is seeking wisdom from a false god instead. And then he tries to threaten Elijah and Elijah's like, oh no, 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 no. Not going to work. And uh, remember fire from heaven? Yeah, we're going to revisit that. Let's do it again. More fire from heaven. So that happens in chapter 1. But then right after that, in chapter 2, Elijah and Elisha are walking along and, and they are talking about the fact that it's time for Elijah to go. He is going to go up to heaven. And in one of the most boss moments of the Bible, Elijah is taken up to heaven, doesn't die, all right? This cat doesn't die before he goes to heaven. He is taken up on a chariot of horses and the whole thing's on fire and he, he boards this chariot and whew, off they go up to heaven while Elisha is standing there like, whew, don't see that every day. 
So that happens at the beginning of chapter 2. Just before that, he says to Elijah, listen, I know that you're about to be taken. I want you to give me a double portion of the Spirit so that I can minister effectively as well. And Elijah's like, all right, here's the deal. What you've asked is a difficult thing. I'm going to ask God to do that. If you see me being taken up to heaven, you're going to receive that double portion. If it happens while you're asleep or you don't notice, then it's not going to happen. Well, it happens. Elisha sees it, and he is given a double portion of the Spirit. And so, Elisha now is beginning his prophetic ministry. That leads us to our event in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, with the bears. Now, quick caveat. I know we're a long way in, and I haven't gotten to my first point yet. Okay? Just hang on. We're going to get there. We have to start explaining some very important details first in this story. Now, why is this story so appalling? It's appalling because not just bears are mauling people, right? It's appalling because bears are mauling kids, right? We have this picture in our minds, do we not? of this crotchety old bald man walking down the street and a bunch of toddlers run up to him and they're like, go up, baldy, go up, baldy. And Elijah's like, kids, bears, get them. And then they get mauled. And we're like, whoa, oh my God, what's going on? But as it turns out, that term small boys is actually not a good translation. Uh, The biblical illustrator commentary notes that this phrase, small boys, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Um, And in those places, it refers to men, fully grown adult men, young, maybe in their 20s, but grown men. In 1 Kings 3.7, it's applied to Solomon, and at the time, Solomon is 20 years old. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, Jeremiah uses it to describe himself when he was called to begin in the prophetic ministry. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, the word is used to describe Joseph, who at the time of this verse is 17 years old. So what that tells us is we're not talking about a group of children in this passage What we're actually talking about is a mob of young men trying to act like they grown. Now, have you ever been around some 17-year-olds who think they grown? Who trying to act like, oh, we're adults and we don't need anybody to tell us what to do and it's us against the world and you you can't step to us? That is what we have here, okay? This is a mob of young men. That's the second detail that we have to see. It's important to note that this is a large group. Now, how many of these kids, these young men, get mauled? It says 42. But it doesn't just say 42. It says 42 of them. So that means that this group is larger than 42. Now, let's be really, really conservative and say that it's a group of 50. And these are super efficient bears, okay? These bears come up on a group of 50, and even as they're scattering, these bears are boss bears who get more than 90% of the group, all right? 
And you would think a bear sent by God is going to be a boss bear. So let's be real conservative and say it's a group of 50, even though it's probably a, a group that's much larger than that. So there's 50 men surrounding Elijah, starting to taunt him. This passage is already sounding much different, isn't it? Uh, Some commentators postulate, based on the Hebrew that's used to describe these young men, that they are actually temple servants in the, the temple to Baal. We'll revisit that later. Another detail that we have to clarify is that Elisha is about the same age as these people that he's sick and bears on. And that doesn't seem like an important detail, but again, we normally picture this passage with a crotchety old man, because he's bald, and he's a prophet, and they're always old and bald, right? Losing his temper on a bunch of little kids, but, but that's not the case. We learn from another passage that Elisha lived another 60 years after taking over for Elijah, which just happened earlier in this chapter. So Elisha can't be any older than his 20s. So Elisha is the same age as the mob. Uh, The fourth detail is Elisha has just taken over for Elijah. And Elijah had been God's spokesperson for decades. During that time, again, he's squaring off with Baal. He's going and squaring off against the king and the queen. He's threatened with death on a number of occasions. And and so several times, God had to use Elijah to oppose rebellion. And, And God kept him safe, ultimately taking him up to heaven without even dying. So now, a young Elisha takes over. And he's immediately surrounded by a gang of young men who are taunting him. Finally, it is not about a receding hairline. Uh, and there's a few possibilities here. When, when we look at the, the insult, go up, bald head. I don't know about you. Not my go-to, okay? Not my go-to insult when I'm trying to square off with somebody. If you're watching while and out, Nick Cannon is never going to yell at someone, go up, bald head. Everyone would look at him and be like, what? What are you talking about? So this insult doesn't make any sense to us. But as it turns out, it's not really about having a receding hairline. A number of possibilities here exist. One is that baldness was considered in this culture as being cursed by God. This is referenced in Isaiah 3.24. Another possibility is that baldy is used as an insult that referenced lepers. When a person would uh, contract leprosy, they would have to shave their heads and they were then cast out of the city. They were put in permanent quarantine. And so this may be saying that you are an outcast. You're cursed like them. And then finally, there's a possibility that Elisha may have shaved his head as part of a vow because he's now assuming the office of prophet. And so in all of these cases, these young men are not insulting him on the basis of appearance. They are either calling him cursed, calling him someone who should be thrown out of the city, or they are challenging his claim to Elijah's ministry. That is what the term means. And that part, go up, Those words are very important because they're a direct reference to what's just happened to Elijah. How he has just gone up to heaven. Uh, 
And if we looked closely at these first few chapters, the, the terms go up and go down are used over and over and over. It's a, it's a literary device. There, this is a direct reference to Elijah being taken up to heaven. It's the same Hebrew word. Earlier in the passage, Elisha tells all of the sons of the prophets how God has taken Elijah up to heaven. And they say, are, are you sure? Are you really sure that that's what happened? God just took him up on a chariot? Well, let's send out a search party. Maybe, maybe he fell out of the chariot. Maybe God dropped him. He might be on a mountain somewhere. And Elisha's like, no, that's not what happened. He went up to heaven. And they're like, but I really think we should send out a search party. And finally, Elisha's like, all right, fine, send out the search party. But I'm already telling you what you're going to find. So that means that even those people who were friendly to Elisha didn't really believe what Elisha said, that Elijah had been taken up. So they go out and they search for three days. They come back empty-handed and he's like, didn't I tell you? He was taken up. God took him up. So if his friends didn't even believe him, how much more did his enemies not believe him? This group of people confronts him and begins to taunt him saying, all right, go up. Go up then. In other words, they're like, oh, so God just took him up to heaven, huh? He just went up, right? How about you go on up the same way? How about you go on up out of here and leave us alone? Let God rescue you on a cloud from us. That is what they're saying. So, Elisha turns around and curses them in the name of the Lord. And in doing so, He's referencing Leviticus 26, verses 21 and 22, where God says this, If you act with hostility and are unwilling to hear and obey me, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, and which shall bereave you of your children. So, the NIV um, study notes put it like this. Thus, Elisha's first acts were indicative of his ministry that would follow. God's covenant blessings would come to those who looked to him, but God's covenant curses would fall on those who turned away from him. So, really we could stop there, right? We could say... Well, this answers the question of why this story is even in here. God recorded it as a sign that he wanted the people in this region to repent and listen to the prophet, but they didn't and they received just judgment. That's why this is in here. And if we stop there, truly, we've gained a lot of ground, right? We've answered most of the questions that most people would ask. But you know me, let's take it further. So, at long last, here's point number one. Point number one, people lash out when their idols are threatened. People lash out when their idols are threatened. At the beginning of chapter two, Elijah and Elisha together are at Bethel. And that, again, is where this curse ends up taking place. And that might not seem like an important detail, but it is. 
You see, Bethel was one of two locations in the northern kingdom that had been set up by King Jeroboam as centers for idol worship. Specifically, these two cities. We learn this in 1 Kings chapter 12. That King Jeroboam placed in Bethel a large golden calf. A statue to the god Baal. So he built a temple. He appointed priests. And he instituted in the city a regular uh, uh, schedule of sacrifices to the golden idol. Then he went and did the same thing in another city called Dan. And that had just taken place a few generations prior to our passage here. Just a couple hundred years. So by this time, when this happens, Bethel is a thriving metropolis whose economy is centered around the temple there in the city. It is, quite literally, a city built on idolatry. It is the entire thrust of the economy, all right? Las Vegas. Picture that. A city built on sin. So, that informs us as to the reason why Elisha is going there. Could it be that Elisha is going to Bethel in order to urge the people to turn away from their idolatry? What we have here then is a group of young men defending that idolatry. The prophet starts walking into town. And the previous prophet, as you know, has a track record of taking out false prophets. 450 prophets of Baal have already met fire from heaven. Massacred. Now his successor starts walking into Bethel. And these young men say, alright, we got to defend our turf. But it's, it's more than that. Too. It, it's not just about defending turf, it's also about the bottom line. You see, if, if Elisha goes into Bethel and he starts turning all the people's hearts back toward the Lord, the idol business is going to lose a lot of money. People are going to lose their jobs. The economy is going to be crippled. And so they call the whole gang together and they surround Elisha and start taunting him. Now we also have to understand that another part of what's happening in this passage is a throwback to the previous chapter. Again, King Azahiah is unfaithful to the Lord. And, and I encourage you to go back and read chapter 1. But here's the basic story. King Azahiah is sick. And so he wants to know, am I going to recover from this sickness? So what he does is he sends some of his messengers to go and inquire of a false god. Well, the real god doesn't like this. And so, the real god sends a message through Elijah that says, no, you will not be recovering from this sickness. Now, the king wants to threaten Elijah. So the king sends 50 men. This group of 50 men with a captain goes to Elijah and says, come down. Literally, they say, come down here. The king wants to talk to you. You, now, let's go. Elijah goes, uh, no, not going to happen. Y'all going to die. And fire from heaven consumes this group of 51 soldiers. 
So Azahai is like, all right, well, there goes 50. Let me send 50 more. So the second group of 50 comes and they're like, come down. Now, you come down. Elijah's like, uh, nah. Fire from heaven. Those guys get taken. Now a third group, the third group comes and the third captain is a whole lot smarter. He comes begging. He's like, Elijah, please spare me and my men. Please let our lives be valuable in your sight. We ask for mercy. I know what happened to the first two groups. They got barbecued. I do not want that to happen to us. Please be merciful. Would you be willing, maybe, to come and talk to the king? Perhaps up to you, though. Totally up to you, man. What what do you want to do? Elijah's like, all right, all right. I'll I'll go down with you. I'm going to save your lives. This king is humble. And his lives... Uh, the lives of him, him and his men are saved. Now, this whole time, Elisha is watching this. He's taking notes. This is, this is his mentor. Elijah's then taken up to heaven in chapter two. Elisha now becomes his successor. And what's the first thing that happens? The first thing that happens when Elijah takes over? Just like with Elijah, a group of men comes and starts to threaten him. And how many? Probably about 50. And they pretend that they have authority over the representative of God. But this time, instead of that group of men going, come down with us, they're saying, go up with Elijah. These guys see that the office of the prophet is under new management now. And it's not scary old Elijah anymore. It's this young guy, fresh out of seminary. And they say, oh, we can take him. We can intimidate this guy. His boss couldn't be intimidated, but now this young cat's by himself. Surround him. We'll show him that we can't be pushed around. Go on up with your boss, Elisha. Go on up or else. And Elisha's response, just like his mentor. Except, instead of calling down fire from heaven, he summons bears from the woods. He shows these scoffers that Elijah may be gone, but God is still in charge. So, application time. You, I'm guessing, have probably never threatened the life of a prophet. One of the reasons is because you've never met one in this sense of the word prophet. We have the Holy Spirit, so there's no longer just one dude representing God to the people. But you've probably never threatened a pastor. Let's try to make sure that you don't start that habit here by threatening me. I don't know the bear curse, okay? But I can call some people, all right? Puerto Ricans got a lot of cousins, all right? I can't call bears, but I can call Juan and Carlos, and you know they got machetes, okay? So don't threaten me either. You have probably never threatened a pastor, but... Have you ever left a church because he didn't tell you what you wanted to hear? Have you ever withheld your tithes because the preaching made you uncomfortable? Or how about this? Think about it in terms of directly your relationship with God. Have you ever gotten mad at God because he was commanding you to do something that you didn't want to do? 
or making you go through something that you didn't want to go through? Have you ever challenged God and said, come down and fix this? Don't you know what you're doing up there? I know I've been guilty of that. So that begs the question, what do you do when the idols in your life are threatened? What do you do when God asks you to do something that might cause you to lose money, lose friends, lose influence, lose the bottom line? Ooh, nobody likes having their bank account threatened. People hate it when the church talks about money. And I know that that's partly because there's a lot of charlatan preachers who have fleeced a bunch of congregants so much that it's become a meme. But regardless, none of us like having the Lord look at our wallet and go, what if I asked you for that? Would you give it to me? Whatever it might be, I encourage you, take a moment with the Holy Spirit. Allow him to point you to something in your heart that you have kept from him. Or to something that you have made an idol out of. Something that might even be a a good thing, a, a gift from God, but now it's turned into your source of satisfaction and meaning. The point is, if there is an idol anywhere in your life, it is going to make you very uncomfortable when anything threatens it. And if your heart, if your heart sees the Holy Spirit starting to come up the hill, getting ready to preach in front of your golden calf, your flesh is going to bow up and start screaming at the top of its lungs, go on up, bald head, get out of here, don't ask me for that. Now, praise God, praise God that he doesn't look at us when we do that and respond with, all right, bears. Now, why doesn't God do that? Point number two, Elijah called down fire and Elisha called out bears because they weren't, they weren't called to die for the people. The prophets had one job. That job was to be the mouthpiece of God to their generation. They were his representatives, his ambassadors. They were the visual, physical representation of the presence of God that the people could see and look at and hear as they heard guidance from the Lord. But there's something that these prophets were not. Saviors. Every prophet was a messenger. Every prophet was a bearer of truth. And some of those prophets used words. Some of those prophets used very weird symbols like we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Ezekiel and his defecates. But the prophets were not messiahs except one. See, the ultimate prophet was the one that all the other prophets had been preparing for. All the other prophets led up to the ultimate prophet, Jesus. Only one prophet was called to lay down his life for the sins of the people. Christ. 
Every other prophet before him was called to declare truth. They were called to send the message to the people to repent. They were there to explain the wrath of God against sin and to be the voice of God urging them to turn from that sin and return to him. Now, oftentimes people would challenge the prophet or they would refuse to obey and the prophet would be the one to call for righteous judgment. And... Some of the prophets were killed, but their deaths were not substitutionary. All of the prophets led up to Jesus, and Jesus did what no other prophet could do. He took the sins of the people and the judgment of God for those sins upon himself. Jesus is the greater Elijah Jesus is the greater Elisha. Jesus says to the people, you have sinned. You have challenged the most high. But instead of calling down fire from heaven on you, instead of calling bears against you, I'm calling down the wrath of God on me. I am dying in your place. I am taking the judgment that you deserve. Like the other prophets, Jesus represented God to the people. He declared truth. He called for repentance. He prophesied about the wrath of God. But then he did what no other prophet could do, and that was drink the full cup of that wrath in order to give the people freedom. The truth is, you and I deserve bears. We deserve bears because though we may have never threatened the life of one of God's representatives, our sins actually caused the death of the ultimate prophet. We refused to obey the commands of God. We set ourselves up as his enemies. We treated God like he had no authority over us. But, but, Instead of giving us bears for our sin, he decided to bear the weight of our sin. Y'all didn't catch that. Let me say it again. Instead of giving us bears for our sin, he decided to bear the weight of our sin. That's the beauty of the gospel. Final point before we close. Every act of judgment on someone is a gracious invitation to repentance to someone else. Every act of judgment on someone is a gracious act calling someone else to repent. Now this harkens back to something that I said last week. Some of the things that happen to you aren't for you. They're for someone else. But I'll also add to this point and say sometimes an act of judgment on you is also a gracious invitation to you to repent. Because God doesn't destroy completely, he leaves room for repentance. Quite likely some of these young men lived to tell the tale. We know that it was 42 of them, so there was others of them that escaped, (laughs) The, the fast ones, the real quick ones, all right? The, the guys who were on the track team, they got away from the bears. They lived to tell the tale. But maybe even some of the ones that the bears got lived. We don't know. 
I mean, we know from today, not everyone who gets attacked by a bear dies. Maybe some of these guys lost arms and legs. Maybe some of them had terrible scarring for the rest of their lives. We don't know for sure that there were 42 funerals. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. The point is, regardless of whatever the number was, God does this act of judgment, and part of what it is, is a sign. Here's another biblical interpretation principle. Sometimes what isn't said is almost as important as what is said. Sometimes it's those things between the lines that make all the difference. And so to see those things that aren't said, you, you kind of have to imagine yourself observing the scene, right? You, you kind of build the scenario like a movie scene in your imagination. And where is this event taking place? We know Bethel, but specifically it says in verse 23 that this happens, quote, while he was going up on the way, okay? While he was going up on the way. That means this doesn't happen in the middle of town square, all right? He's not in downtown Bethel, standing in front of the flashing neon signs where this is taking place. He's on his way into the city. But that means he's on the main road, going into Bethel, and he's obviously close enough to the city for this gang to see him and, and, and know why he's there and try to stop him. So this is happening in a location where other observers are present watching this happen. Imagine people are watching this from their window. I don't know if you're one of those neighbors that when something is going on in the neighborhood, you're at the, at the blinds looking through. That's me, okay? I'm gonna be honest. Anytime I hear sirens, I'm like, what's going on out there? I hear a noise and I'm like, what are the neighbors doing? That's me, all right? So imagine the same thing. People can see from their house. People are standing in their yards mowing their rocks and they can see this happening. This is a thriving metropolis, as you know. So Elisha performs this act of judgment with people watching. And what message do you think they would have gotten from seeing this sign? What effect would it have? If you've got a dude who's watching from his house through the blinds and he sees Elisha call bears after this gang of young men because he was challenging their idolatry, what do you think he's going to do? Uh, Lisa, hey, cancel our membership to the, the calf club. Uh, we're not going back there anymore. Uh, Yahweh's back in town and, and he is not happy. We need to get on the right side of this. Hey, uh, get dressed for church. We're going to church. Lisa, get dressed for church. Get dressed right now or I'm going to spank you. Let's go. That is what would happen. God displays this act of judgment where other people could see it. And they could be invited to repent. Now, history tells us that the people of this region, by and large, did not repent. This act was calling them to do so. They didn't take the warning. And in 722 BC, the place is ransacked by the Assyrian Empire. Let's not make the same mistake. 
Are there ways that you have seen the judgment of the Lord anywhere recently, in your life or in someone else's? Could there be some way in that that he is calling you to repent of the idolatry in your life? Do not make the mistake of fighting against God. Bears are the least of our worries. Today, he is inviting you. Let me bear your sin and beat it. Battlestar Galactica. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that you call us to repentance. Thank you that you take our sin upon yourself. You bear it on your shoulders. God, I pray that each one of us will be brought to that place of humble submission. God, that you would bring us to a place where we give you everything. Lord, that you would show us those places in our lives that we are holding on to, those things in our hearts that we've set up as false gods, those ways that we try to find meaning in life without you. Show us those things. And Lord, I pray that we would lay them at the foot of the cross. God, for every person under the sound of my voice, here or online, may your Holy Spirit work powerfully in their souls to call them to yourself. God, if there are any who have never given their lives to you, Lord, let tonight be the night that you draw them. And for all of us that call ourselves by your name and yet haven't submitted completely, bring us to that point. God, I pray that as we sing this final song, it would be an opportunity for reflection, that each one of us would take the next few moments, allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, that you would prompt each person to obey in whatever way you desire, and that each person would have the courage to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.